Hey, Tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. Hello, Tourpreneur community. Today, I welcome Martin Alcock. Martin is from the Travel Trade Consultancy, which helps travel companies and tour operators solve regulation finance issues, and strategy problems. He's been running this for over a decade. Website, if you want to look him up, traveltradeconsultancy.co.uk. So the TTC helps operators and tour operators launch new businesses, launch new products, new markets, obtain licenses that can be often difficult to get, things like Atoll, APTA, IATA, these are UK, some of them European, UK type licenses. He also gets involved in negotiating approval for major corporate changes within OTA. If you're in these licenses and you want to change your organization, you have to negotiate the changes. Complying with travel regulations, the European travel regulations that still impact on UK operators. We have to uh, comply with them. He also gets involved in arranging financial security. This is important because during COVID, we all seen what happened with many operators not having financial security in place, bonding in place. Uh, various trust accounts to be able to pay back the customers. So that's super important. So we'll get into that. And he also gets involved in helping operators with banking and merchant providers. So your credit card providers and the, the ins and outs of the myriad of different providers that we have these days, some good, some bad, some pooling at short notice, um, who is the merchant of record, all of these difficult questions. And we may even get in for UK operators a little bit on TOMS and on VAT because that is always one that confuses the hell out of me. Did you know Tourpreneur also has a Facebook community of over 7,000 tour operators? If you are not a member, then search for Tourpreneur on Facebook and join a thriving community of tour operators and other travel professionals, all of whom learn from each other as well as from Chris, Mitch, Pete, and many other industry experts. By becoming a member, you will be notified first of any events, meetups, and exclusive content. Join the Tourpreneur community today. Facebook.com slash group slash Tourpreneur. Welcome, Martin. Welcome to Tourpreneur. Thanks, Peter. That was a great intro. Appreciate it. Hey. All of, this, all of this stuff is the sort of stuff that used to make, when I was operating, used to make my eyes glaze over, glaze over. but it is it is important, it needs done, and the whole thing we run this community for is to make operators more profitable, and the hard reality is if you ignore some of this stuff, you will not be a profitable operator, so it, some of this stuff is really, really important to your objective to uh, make operators more profitable. So let's jump straight in. Can you share some of your experiences with 
helping tour operators or supporting tour operators in their experiences, some of the challenges they face when they're setting up or launching new products, maybe something around funding, and if operators want to scale, they often struggle with extra funding. Uh, we're not in the VC world, we're in normal funding world. So just some of your experiences over the last decade with helping operators around that. Yeah, for sure. And look, um, all of this, all of that stuff that you covered off in the introduction, that none of that is why people get into this business, right? They, they, they definitely don't wake up at, um, and, and decide that they want to kind of deal with these kind of regulatory complexities. And so I suppose at, at the heart of what we're trying to do is to is to simplify the complex and to help people through all of that stuff. So often, you know, go to the, the, the kind of typical client project that, that we pick up. It tends to be someone has a real passion for a particular service or product and they start to look at how can they build a business and, and um, you know, build a lifestyle around that. And they very quickly come up against some of those issues around, in our world, it's often the regulation, the licensing, and what does the law say you can and can't do very quickly after that, it's it's the funding, you know, the work the working capital challenges for a startup business in this sort of space are really challenging because, um, you know, there's a there's a lot of costs and when you're subscale, you usually have to pay a lot of supply in advance of generating um, the, the 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 profits and and realizing the the the, the profits. So it, it it can be a usually that's the starting point we get asked is how can I make sure I stay the right side of the law? What can I what can I do? What can't I do? And what badges or licenses might I need and then very quickly afterwards can you help us to raise some funding to 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 basically fund fund that and often that will be um you know from a from a, a variety of sources that will will help them to to work through but you know there's all that building financial models trying to help them to come up with realistic assumptions on um what they're going to need what the kind of funding gap is and then we start to look at sources uh, so hopefully that gives you like a little bit of a flavor for where we tend to get involved Yep, sure. So let's just pick one of them. Let's yep. one of the licenses up to that's a fairly common one in the UK. How would you help a, an operator go one decide, not go and obtain up decide if they actually need up up to and then told you before we recorded, I put my hands up. I never ever joined up yep. all the years I was operating. So how would, would you help an operator decide if they need to be there up to and then if they are, how would you go about helping them join? Well, I think with with any of these things, the starting question is probably do you, do you need it, and, and what are the the benefits? Now, some of them are legal obligations. You know, depending on which country you're established in, um, it might be a, a legal obligation to have a particular license. Atoll is a great example. It's not a choice; you've got to have it if you sell that kind of you know flight inclusive product. APTA is more a trade association, although it does act in some ways like a regulator. So, I, I guess the starting point is is it is it a choice or must you have something? If you have to have something. There are multiple options out there, and they all have um, pros and cons. You know, Abter is a great example of not only does it do the consumer protection piece, but it's doing government lobbying, it's running training courses, it's providing model terms and conditions. Now, you might be an operator who says, "I want all of that. I want to be part of that community, and I'm willing to pay the price for all of those ancillaries." Or you might not. You might think, "I want the bare minimum compliance product that's out there, and I don't care about all that government lobbying stuff that they do, or I don't care about the training courses they put on. I just want to kind of tick that box." In which case, that probably isn't right for you, and it may be that that might be a, a more expensive way of getting to that same outcome. So the starting point is probably trying to work through some of those um, some of those different sort of decision trees. Again, a great example in in the UK market. It it often comes down to 
your client base. I was with a business this morning, for example, who says, well, we, we were an Abta member and we came out of it. We, we ran some extensive A-B testing on booking conversions with and without the logo. How does the Abta logo compare with, say, Trustpilot or you know, just a, a, a no logo at all? And they came to the conclusion that actually our customer base doesn't necessarily value it. But I have other, customer, other clients who tell me, you know, we're selling to a particular age group or demographic where if we remove that logo, we would bookings would dry up, you know. So I think there's an element of what what's the cohort that you're selling to and what does the sort of data tell us about whether people do or don't place sort of reliance in that sort of area. So the, the kind of lesson I got there is when we're ranting on to the community about this all the time. So if you listen to that, folks, A-B testing, split testing. Do not okay. run with opinion. Do not run with what you've been told. Actually test. And that was a great example. Physically testing. Does this authority's logo make a difference to my bookings or not? And for some it is, and for some it's not. Therefore, that demonstrates you can't take anyone's word for it. You have to actually go out there and test, test, test to actually get the Yes. Well, the, the, the guys I was talking to this morning are, you know, not a single change will be made to the website, either to be something to be added or something to be subtracted without full testing. And, uh, you know, the data is what they follow before they, they make any of those changes. So I think if you can do that, and it's relatively simple to do these days, of course, um, I think if you can, it's definitely something worth doing. So package travel regulations for UK operators, we were in Europe. Now we are not in Europe. We came under European package travel regulations, which are available for everybody to download off the internet, but they are confusing. Then that thing called Brexit came along, and mm -hmm. I'm not clear where we stand at the moment in the UK for travel package regulations. Have we adopted what was in Europe? Are we still adhering to it? Have we come up with new stuff or sell? It's all a bit... Okay. Yeah, so the so the, the the package travel directive was the European piece of legislation that that uh, covered all of the countries across Europe, and obviously we were the UK was was part part of that European Union. But what we did was transpose the directive into UK legislation on the UK statute books. So the package travel regulations, it's actually the package travel and linked travel regulations to give it its full name, that exists on in UK law. So. When we left Europe and went through the transition arrangement, the, the, the transition period, that law still exists and that, that's what's um, applying today. But there is talk of making some changes to that, various consultation processes going on, but as things stand, nothing has actually changed in the, in the, the regulatory framework. Could you explain, because we've got a lot of new operators, a lot of startup, even been maybe going a few years, but they're still in that startup phase. Could you explain what included in the in the regulations package travel yeah. that would make them legally liable to adhere to it what are, what are they doing that would make them drop into these regulations because a lot of our community will not drop into these regulations but other ones will yes and and it, i mean absolutely that's the right place to start isn't it is because it, it captures certain types or or um combinations of arrangements and um, probably worth just sort of standing back and saying at its heart this is a consumer protection piece of legislation so it's firstly protecting consumers monies so when people have paid in advance for something and you know the main use cases that you know the, 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 the family holiday you know people pay a long, a long time in advance for this trip it's a it's a big ticket item if something goes wrong after you've paid it the, the law says there should be some kind of way of compensating the person who's paid 
But the other really important aspect, it's not just about financial liability, it's about the health and safety, the, the, um, the, 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 the liability from a health and safety perspective of, of the trip. So if you're deemed to have sold a package, then you as the package organizer are liable for everything that goes on on that trip. And that covers not only the financial aspect of um, you know failure of an individual component of, of that, it does cover slips and trips. It covers uh, issues they might have while they're on your trip if 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 they um you know have an accident or something that you can be liable so really important to understand where the boundaries of that uh kick in effectively it all hinges on this definition of a package so there's a there's a lengthy piece of legislation that explains what it is but fundamentally it's where you combine two or more of um transport accommodation vehicle hire and other ancillary service and other to form part of a package has to be the material because of its financial um, aspect. So is it more than 25% of the overall thing you've put together or material because it was the main purpose of the, 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 it was a material aspect of the arrangements that you were selling and advertising it on. So a great example is if you're selling, I don't know, event sports tickets and a, and a, and a flight, that would be a package. If the main purpose of that trip was the sports ticket, if you see what I mean, if, if it was the, a, a relatively cheap add-on like a, a transfer or something like that, then that wouldn't be enough to create a package. So it's got to be... It's got to be beyond, sorry, Peter. I'm just thinking back to my days handling this stuff. Is there something about 24 hours in there as well? It has to be there overnight? Is. There is. It's got to be It's got to be greater than 24 hours or involve an overnight stay. So yeah, day uh, day trips with you know multi-events, um, transport and some sort of guided tour, for example, if it was all within that one day, then that wouldn't be captured under the under the regulations. But the minute you start going beyond a day and uh, having overnight stays and things, then you've got to be really careful, and it most likely would be caught. Yeah, that, the reason I'm bringing that up is we do a lot of training with the community. We take day operators, which about sixty percent of community is day operators, and we encourage them to become multi-day operators. Or basically, we're encouraging them to sell packages. Why are we doing that? Because we know the numbers and. If you're going to be a highly profitable day operator, you're going to have to sell a lot of people. Whereas you can be a highly profitable operator on multi-day selling a lot less people, less clients, more profit. So we encourage a lot of our day operators to experiment with multi-day product and packaging, but we don't tell them suddenly to go from one day to 14 days heading to Kilimanjaro. We say whatever destination you're in, instead of selling a day event, sell a two-day event, sell a three-day event, so start small and build up until you, you get a feel for multi-day and multi-day clients. However, as Mark has just explained, the minute that you do do that, and certainly in the UK, you fall under other regulation the minute you go over 24 hours and it becomes an overnight stay. Yes. Yes. And so so you definitely shouldn't walk into that um, unaware. You do you do need to be aware of it. I, I would... I wouldn't try to necessarily discourage people from doing that, though. I mean, it's funny. We have a lot of conversations uh, as a business. We have a lot of conversations with clients who are desperately trying to kind of contort their business into some sort of strange way of selling or, or offering products to try to avoid some of these these regulations. And actually, you can end up shooting yourself in the foot to some extent because there there is, generally speaking better margin to be made by by kind of bundling different services together and 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 going with a you know, slightly kind of longer term product so so there i i guess it's being aware of what your responsibilities are and then making sure you have the necessary business protections in place to cover your own liability you know for example um there's there's a very 
there's a very specific type of um, professional indemnity insurance that you need as a tour operator that needs to cover off all of that liability for slips and trips on one of your tours. You can't just go and buy a professional indemnity insurance policy off the internet. That might also apply to, I don't know, business consultants and accountants. It's got to be a travel policy, but you can by using that or by uh, joining some of these organizations that we talked about at the start, you, you can protect yourself from the risks that come with that, but you've got to do it. You've got to be aware of those risks before you start doing that. Definitely. Could you give us some insights on how operators go about? We had this with COVID. We've had probably the best example we're ever going to have. I'll say that in the wrong way. Best example. COVID was not a great example, but it caused Financial security, bonding, trust accounts, ring fences, insurance, all of these things came to light during the COVID pandemic because we found out what operators had them, what operators didn't have them, what op- which ones of these worked well, because they didn't all work well, even though operators had them. Some of them didn't, uh, but it certainly put it in the, the spotlight. And it was in the background before, certainly the consumer hadn't really paid attention to it. And a lot of operators hadn't paid the correct attention to it, but now it was suddenly in the spotlight. And it was a it was on the BBC News on a regular basis, again, for yeah. the bigger scaled operators that couldn't pay back pay back the, the refunds in a in an acceptable time because they didn't have financial security. So could you just explain some of the options on financial security? Yeah, and look, that was that was just a a crazy period where everything came under the microscope like it, it never had before. And um, it's interesting because we often have this debate about whether whether consumers care or whether they are aware. And I, I think almost always the answer is they aren't. They're usually buying on other reasons like, you know, price or quality of the trip. Then they're not buying on the regulation side until there's an incident, until there's an yeah. issue. Then it becomes... Now care when it goes wrong. Exactly. And, and there's a question mark over what we used to talk about when you'd see a big tour operator failure, for example. You know, Tom, Thomas Cook fails. It's all over the news. Suddenly, everyone wants to know about atoll protection or you know whatever country you might be in. What is my financial protection if this goes wrong? Three or four months later, that's kind of slipped from the memory and, and away you go again. Um, so, so broadly speaking, if you are finding yourself in a position where you're selling packages and you've got an obligation to protect the, the monies that you're collecting, there are a, a range of options how you go about doing that. There's um, a, a, an insurance option, so per passenger insurance policy that in the event that your travel company fails. And remember, what this is what you're covering. It's not... Um, it's not that the trip doesn't go ahead because there's been an ash cloud or something like that. It's it's protection for your business's insolvency. That's what is that, is that pay as you go per passenger? Yeah. So generally, the way it would work is the the insurance would be priced. So they would do the insurance would do a, a, a credit assessment of your business, but they would price the insurance usually around sort of one to two percent of the holiday price or, or the trip price. So um, and you would pay that. You normally would pay that on actual sales. Usually they'll ask for like a, an upfront deposit premium, but you would be paying that on actual sales rather than on a kind of an, a, a budget or a projection of how many you think you're going to sell. Um, and so in the event of your business's insolvency, those consumers can then claim on that insurance policy and get their get their money back. So that's one option. We call it financial failure insurance. So that for a small multi-day operator who's starting to scale up and obviously cash flow is a major probably the major issue for a small yeah. multi-day scaling up. That seems quite attractive if it's pay-as-you-go. 
Yeah, it, it, I wouldn't say it's necessarily the cheapest. So if you get to the end of a financial year and look back, you you might you might say actually you've ended up spending more than some of these other options. But what it does is give you absolute flexibility because as a small operator, where I don't know maybe your your budgeting is relatively unsophisticated and you and you can't say with any kind of degree of confidence what projections are going to look like. Some of the other methods we're going to talk about. Do require you to do that and set bonding levels, for example, based on a based on a set of projections. If you get that wrong, it's a sunk. You could find that you've sunk a lot of cost into something that you didn't need. Financial failure insurance might be more expensive on a per passenger basis, but it it's flexible. It's like a variable cost, and so a lot of operators like it because they can just bake it into their gross margin, and it's effectively it becomes a variable cost rather than a fixed cost. And trust account, they've yeah. they been about since I was a kid. Yeah, so so just very quickly we'll touch on so financial failure insurance is one type, bonding is a is another distinct type, and, and it can be used as insurance. Actually, you can also do that through a bank. The way that works is it's a it's a, a, a effectively a, a guarantee for a fixed amount written by an institution, either your bank or your your insurer. It has to be provided to somebody like ABTA, so so what they call an approved body has to hold that bond, and then again, if your business goes insolvent. Uh, Abter or whoever the body would be would cash in that that bond and they would use that money to repatriate and to refund. So it's a, it it can be insurance back, but it's distinct from financial failure insurance. The third option is trust accounts, and that is effectively where the money that you've collected from consumers sits in a entirely separate, segregated, ring fenced bank account with an independent person overseeing that money and effectively releasing it back to you once you've delivered on those holidays. And it's still. Is it still the case again? I'm going by years. That trust account is it can be a solicitor, lawyer sits as the independent person and then releases it once the trip's over. Yeah, that's right. There's not there's not a huge amount of um, detail set out in the regulations as to who can be that that trust provider, but effectively it's got to be somebody independent. It's got to be somebody competent, and and so usually that would fall into a lawyer or an accountant. Where where it's um. Someone like the the Civil Aviation Authority who run the Atoll scheme here in the UK, they allow trust accounts, but they have a roster of preferred trust providers. And so if you want to meet your obligations under the Atoll scheme using a trust, you must use one of these kind of listed trust account providers. So not everybody has that. And so if you're not Atoll and you just want to trust, actually, you could have your accountant to, to do the work. And um, there are some stipulations as to how the trust has to work, but it's a bit more flexible as to who is the trustee. And and where is the market at the moment between them three options? We are insurance basically pays you go insurance, which I know would be appealing to many small operators. We have bonding, uh, where there's a you're paying, you're putting money away via another insurance policy. Yes, there. And then you have trust accounts where the money from that trip is sitting in the trust account until the. Where's the market on this? How is the market split up? Is one of them growing fast compared with the other? Yeah, I think I think. Um... Trust accounts have grown really out of necessity over the last few years, principally because the insurance market, as you will have seen across all types of insurance all around the world, I think capacity dried up, partly because of COVID. I would actually say that the big Thomas Cook failure probably took out more capacity initially. You know, There was lots of insurers just pulled out of anything related to travel after that failure. Um, but then COVID hit, and I think more insurers disappeared as well. So Trust accounts became a sort of necessity and lots of people moved to that. It's very capital intensive, as you'd expect. It's really difficult to scale up a business. It's difficult to exist in a trust account, but to scale is just uh, 
you know, an even sort of, you know, a degree even harder. Um, we've probably hit a bit of an inflection point over the last few months in that we are in the UK, at least starting to see more insurers coming back into the market, more capacity, more willingness to underwrite bigger limits. And so the people who were, were maybe pushed into trust accounts because they didn't have any other option are now starting to look at that and say, well, actually, can we can we move back again? And we're starting to see both financial failure insurance and the bonding route become more accessible, which is helpful. Freeze up a bit more capital on that. You can use that for other purposes in your business. Let's move on and talk a bit, a bit about preparing budgets. Uh, as you mentioned in your intro that like most people get into this game, they didn't go to university to, to study to become a tour operator. And the vast majority of tour operators have had, had a different career before becoming a tour operator. Or they have been a guide for many tour operators and suddenly got to mid-20s or 30s and decided to become a tour operator. So people tend to fall into this. They don't necessarily have a financial background or an accounting background or in a budgeting background, understand the margin and certainly preparing budgets going forward. So just let's talk a bit about how you help operators detail budgets, business plans, because these are essential if you're going to start using some of these things we've been talking about because of the, the people who issue the, the the badges and the authorities and the bonding and all the rest that want to see your numbers, want to see your budget. Yeah, and, and look, it's not not only is there a third parties looking at this stuff um, and, and, and anyone, third party could be anyone from a regulator to a lender to a potential investor, but I think it's really important to have the discipline to use them as tools in your business because, you know, it's a it's an old adage, isn't it? But it's cash flow that kills businesses. You could have a very profitable, very um, desirable product. But if you if you don't pay attention to that working capital cycle, you can easily find that you run out of money um, in it, in it, in, because of the because of the, you know, the way you're having to effectively pay for a, a lot of costs in, in advance. You know, you can easily find that skip that you grow too rapidly you know it's a nice problem to have but you can easily grow too rapidly and run out of it so i, I think there's a there's a slight kind of paradox isn't there that any financial model is kind of out of date the minute you, you produce it and i think often you'll get people who'll say well i don't see the point because no one can predict the future what, what's the point in even spending the time doing it but i would say that they're important tools because you need to know you you really need to understand what the levers are you can pull so you can come up with a set of assumptions and you can say I think we're going to trade like this which is going to generate this many sales it's going to generate this much cash inflow but if it doesn't if I'm 10% down or if um, that market goes off sale you need to be able to flex that budget and see well what would be the impact and could I survive that and if I and if I had to lose that amount of income in that particular month well what are my options do I have some revolving credit facility do I have another investor or could I put some money back into the business so it's more, I think it's more like a sort of living, breathing tool of your business rather than just being a, I've done a model, there's a budget, stick it on a shelf and, and, and move on. It's something that you, built in the right way, can become something that drives decision-making and, and gives you that sort of peace of mind. Yeah, it's, I mean, we do a bit of training on scenario planning for operators. Yeah. Uh, and I, get, I keep using this bloody example, but it was the biggest one I've ever seen, COVID, and was hopefully the worst scenario plan that you could come up come up with for operators but we're in the travel industry and I wouldn't like to ring off the disasters I encouraged in my time uh, it happens all the time and if you're multi-day and outbound and all operating in different regions and scenario planning asking the question what if what if what if what if this goes wrong is 
hugely beneficial to your business because in travel, some of these things will will happen. It's not a case, oh, they might happen. They will happen. It's in the post. It's it's only a matter of time. Uh, and having, we found out again during COVID that the companies that had great planning and financial models certainly did better. They, they lasted longer. They maybe got out the other side. And the ones that were really weak on financial models didn't do well because the, the businesses clapped pretty early because they undone the scenario planning on the financial model. Yes. And so so for me, the, the building the model, I mean, they can be ridiculously complex. And Peter, I'm sure you've seen complex models in your time. They can run to hundreds of sheets. They can run to millions of assumptions. But I suppose at a basic level, we like to build the model based on um, an ability to flex what's in your control. So for example, if you're a marketing-led business, I don't know if you're, you know, you're, you're um, spending money on paid ads, for example, starting to put some assumptions in around conversion rates. So at ev- almost at every step of the funnel. So what do I have to spend to generate I don't know, a, a, a thousand um, clicks onto my site? And of those a thousand, I think I'm going to convert this many into um, the next stage on the journey. Ultimately, what at each stage, what is the metric that drops out of a ultimately a single booking? Because that allows you again to track actuals over time to see, well, my assumptions were that for every pound spend on marketing, it was going to generate this this volume of interest, this volume of clicks. Well, exactly where is it in the funnel that isn't that isn't functioning, and what what do I need to correct? You can very easily. Um, fixate on the wrong problem without this level of granularity you know a great example is if um is if you know the sales aren't rolling in and you go right well we need to spend more money on marketing but actually with the data you could quickly find well it's i'm getting plenty of attention plenty of people but the friction is i don't know the shopping cart where where people can't check out well actually throwing more and more bookings into the top of the funnel is never going to solve that problem and actually all you're doing is throwing money away so without that i think Without the, the, the modeling of assumptions and then comparing back to, well, what are my actual, what is what are the actual results telling me? I, I, I think it should be a really important part of the you know regular business checking in. Changing the subject and jumping on to one of my non-favorites that always confused me in the, in the days, Tom's VAT. This is for UK listeners. We have a distinct VAT uh, system where you add a product that's 20% on at the top of your your tours, and then it goes through a thing called Tom's, which is a tour operator's margin scheme. Where is that? Is it still in existence? Is it still relevant to tour operators? I did hear it. I had lots of changes in the last few years. Yeah, so look, it, this is definitely not my um, my core area of expertise, but remember remember that um, what Tom's was about was uh, simplifying the position across Europe. So, you know, you're selling in uh, one country, but you're buy supply in lots of other countries rather than having to register in every country in Europe. This was about just paying VAT on the margin that you make in the country that you're established. So the UK has come out of Europe. So um, at the moment, it's still UK tour operators are still applying TOMS. But because because as a UK business, all outbound travel is now zero rated, effectively, you could still run the calculation, but effectively, it means there is no TOMS to pay on your, your margin for outbound travel. Uh, and that's my main sort of area is outbound. I guess if you're organising tours that are all UK based, then then you would still have to account for it, and that would still be um, you know, standard rated. Um, the challenge that we've got though is because we are in this slightly, um, you know, there's this sort of temporary no man's land position where 
if you're selling outbound tours from the UK, you no longer have to pay VAT on the margin because it's zero rated. But what we're starting to see is, uh, you know, the, the the various regimes across Europe saying, well, there's a there's a tax gap here somewhere because no tax is being paid at all. And actually, Croatia is one example of a country that has said, well, you if you're selling to people, uh, taking people to Croatia, you do have to register an account for VAT in Croatia. There was uh, strong hints that Germany would also go down this same route. Um, they seem to have pulled back for a, for a second. But the sort of worst case scenario is that every member state makes, you know, the, the whole reason um, TOMS was put in place in the first instance was to avoid that need to go and register in every member state. That's the danger is we end up in that in that sort of place where it becomes an administrative nightmare. Um, so at the moment, it's in a bit of a temporary hiatus. And I think Croatia do make you do it. Everyone else seems to be kind of holding fire. There is talk again of some kind of um, consultation process to to look at Tom's again. Not sure when that will be exactly. Yeah, again, that obviously falls into your scenario planning because I would class that as high risk. Yes, if you end up as and a small medium sized operator starts having to register for VAT in every year or every country you run outbound tours to, that's a nightmare. <laughs> that yeah. is a that is a, a that's a business killing nightmare. And what what we what we've told people is well firstly you need to understand where you're sending people and at least have the the data that says well if i don't know i'm exposed to germany if i sell a lot of products to germany if germany did go down that route and, and i did have to start registering and paying for paying vat in germany what would the impact of that be because that's that's a kind of you can quantify that right you can look at your sales and look at the vat rate chopping my head non-expert in this by any means chopping my head but if i'm in that situation and that started to roll out across europe Surely my solution is always going to be deregistered my business in the UK and re-register my business in the EU, pick a country, well, and then work over the EU regulation. I think that's what, what we see um, a lot of people do, is that there are these passporting rights in Europe, and so if that became a material problem, I think it's you need to quantify it to say, well, is it material? You know, if, if everything I, everything you do, bar you know, a handful of sales, falls outside of that, then, then you wouldn't need to go down that road, but... Those passporting rights do exist in Europe, so we see a lot of people set up a subsidiary in Ireland or in, in yeah. Netherlands. Sweden actually is quite a, a popular place to set up, and by having that sort of branch or or, um, or, or legal entity in, in Europe, you can then benefit from the passporting rights everywhere else. A quick, quick question on lawyers, legal advice. Everybody's favourite people. They charge a lot, and we never understand what they're talking about. Uh, sorry to any lawyers listening. <laughs> Do small travel businesses scaling up who are getting involved in all of these regulations that we've talked about and different badges, etc. Should a lawyer, do they need a lawyer or can they get by without a lawyer, but do they need a dedicated travel expert lawyer? I, I mean, I think I think below a certain scale, you probably, you, you need a decent set of terms and conditions. And frankly, what yeah. most people do with startups is, uh, is you know, Look at their model in on and copy and paste exactly. I, I mentioned at the start, ABTA. If you're a member of an organisation like ABTA, they have um, a whole suite of documents, standard off-the-shelf documents that are customizable. Great place to start because they're constantly having lawyers look at them and refresh them when there is like a you know a legislative change that needs to be incorporated. So we would tend to say, you know, as a startup, you definitely need terms and conditions. You need to have thought about the aspects of liability, all that stuff we talked about on the package travel regulations, for example. You need to make sure that, you, you, you know, you're mirroring your 
your, your your legal obligations in those terms and conditions. It's not really until you get above a certain scale, and and again, it's you know pluck a number out, out of thin air. But really, it's until you've got traction, until you're kind of turnover above a million. I would say that's really when you start to get a lawyer involved in, and and that's where they earn their crust, right? Because that's where there's much bigger liability if you get these things wrong. So they will then make a much more bespoke set of terms and conditions. And I think that also implies that also um, applies to supplier contracts, right? Like when you're starting off, you don't have the scale to if you want to sell the, the the supply of a particular provider and bundle that together, you know, whether that be a flight or a hotel or whatever. When you're subscale, you don't really have any negotiating power. You're more or less given the terms, and you ha- you either comply with them or you don't. Once you get to a a bit beyond that, and you do start having some purchasing power, it is then entirely possible for you to push back on terms you know great example you know every set of terms and conditions will will say what what geographic jurisdiction we would go to court if there was a dispute and you always want that to be england and wales if you're if you're an english you know a british established company you always want that on your kind of home pitch now if you're selling i don't know a spanish hotel they are always going to want it in their territory so until you've got some purchasing power, you've got no chance of changing that. But after a while, that's where a lawyer can really help you is you can start to make some changes to those standardized terms and make them a little bit more kind of buyer-friendly, if you like. Yeah, no, it makes, makes sense. Uh, again, switching subject, uh, one of my bugbears, because it comes up a lot in the community and it's not understood well. Uh, many of our operators just have never heard of it. So the merchant of record... Who is the merchant of record when you sign up to a payment gateway uh, as a tour operator? What's happened over the last seven, eight years when we've got more and more technology platforms come into the business, and these are SaaS platforms that have scaled rapidly, lots of them well-funded, signing up, and in some cases, thousands of operators, other cases, hundreds of operators, makes it very easy for a new business, a small business, just to sign up with a technology platform to run the operations of the business, help with the content management and sell it, but they also come in with the, oh, we'll handle your payments as well. And that's compelling if you're small and struggling to get merchant services because it can be hard to get merchant services, particularly on on outbound multi-day or any multi-day. But that comes with legal liability. Who is the merchant of record? So could you just discuss a bit about the merchant of record? Yeah, and it, and it's a grey area, isn't it? But if you go back to that stuff that we talked about at the start, around if what you're selling is a package, so it's multi, it's multi-day, it's um, multiple components, like we talked about, but added together, then you do have some legal responsibility to protect that customer's money to to refund in certain circumstances. You know, one of the COVID issues, wasn't it, was that the obligation to refund within very tight timescales when you maybe weren't receiving refunds from uh, further up the supply chain. So if you're the merchant of record, you've collected that payment directly. Firstly, that that means the the, the liability does land on on you as the you know because you you're the you're the contractual party in that contract, but you're also in control of the money, and I think that's a really important part of this is you have got the money. You can dictate and determine when, say, refunds get paid or or um, you, you know exactly what happens in a sort of disaster scenario. What worries me about not being merchant of record. But also, but whilst being the package organizer, is you've got all of the risk and all of the responsibility, but you don't have control of the money. Now, you could be, you could be, um, you could avoid being merchant of record in a sort of agency scenario if you if you were acting as the agent of someone 
further down the supply chain and they're the one that's taking all of that legal responsibility, then it's probably okay. But my worry would be if you're the package organizer in law, but you don't have control of the cash, you could very easily find yourself in a, in a difficult place. And one of, one of the issues we see keep popping up with this is we have a lot of tour operators who change their technology platform. Uh, they decide to get, certainly if they're scaling up, they've started off with a technology platform that is good for when they're a small operator, they start to become a medium-sized operator, and they decide they need a different technology problem, uh, platform. And if they've subcontracted the merchant record to the initial platform, they will have lots and lots of forward bookings in there that deposits have been paid. Yes. So there's there's liability on that platform. And then they say to the platform, oh, we've scaled up now, we're leaving, or we're changing to another platform. Sorry, but yours doesn't do XYZ for us anymore, and we're leaving to there. And that's where it becomes challenging because there's liability on the first platform. The operator thinks that money is their legal liability, but it's not. <laughs> it's the... All the responsibility of the booking is their responsibility, but the actual money is the legal liability on the, the platform. So that's where we've seen it starts to get a bit messy when people are not the merchant of record. Uh, and I would say, from a scaling point of view, this wasn't an option 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago. You had to be the merchant of record. Yes. Because it was a pain point, and now we have lots of tech and lots of platforms willing to take that pain point away, which makes it really easy. We've seen a massive growth of operators who just sign up to the, the platform without realizing that they have liabilities with, with not being the merchant or record. And, and again, I mean, that's a great example because it's the, because the platform does have the liability. You know, ultimately, if, if the service isn't provided, the consumer who has, who has used their card to pay the platform does have the right to charge back against the platform. So the platform does carry liability. You've, if your business has moved on somewhere else, you can easily find that they're wanting to withhold um, for for much longer than their normal terms. They they may they may say, well, actually, for this liability, if you if your runoff of bookings is over the next six months, well, until that last person has returned, theoretically, we could receive a charge back for non delivery of service. And so, it it, it go, go back to that modelling point, right? Like suddenly you can find that there's a big cash flow gap there because all that money that you thought was coming to you from the merchant processor via the platform in that instance, you might find is is stopped and you're now being drip fed as and when your customers travel and come back again. That That's a, that's a cash flow gap that's going to have to be filled from from somewhere else. And, and, and you know, equally, the worst case scenario is the new bookings you're taking with, a let's say, a new merchant provider where you don't have history with them if you're subscale, you maybe can't negotiate preferential terms. You might find that you've got thirty day settlement on them as well, and so suddenly you've got a, you've got a, a long gap to bridge. I mean, it, it's uh, we do a lot of work in the transaction space. Companies uh, being acquired, and often there'll be change of control provisions either in their licenses or in their their contractual terms with um, either platforms or with um, merchant acquirers and whatnot. And it's these little unforeseen problems that that creep up that somebody suddenly says actually i think i've got a liability so i'm going to shut the the gates and stop money coming out you know that those unforeseen things can really cause problems ultimately with uh, getting a transaction away so coming to the end of this martin i wonder if you yep. could just finish off with you giving us maybe one or maybe two just different scenarios or you don't need to name the operator but give us a typical operator that will come to you with the typical problems and 
how you would work through them problems, time scale, et cetera, et cetera. Just a couple of scenarios, how you help. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the most common one would be in that regulatory space, you know, so it can be um, a very positive reason. Like I'm working on one right now where private equity fund has a, they're in exclusivity. The private equity fund is agreeing to buy this business. It has a bunch of licenses. And so they, that will trigger a change of control. And so as part of that process, we're helping them to firstly cost out what we think it's going to mean in terms of new security that will have to be put in place because there's new owners, how we place that, whether it's bond, trust account, insurance, all that stuff we talked about before. And then we help them execute the transaction. So uh, we want to complete by the end of July. We'll just make sure that we get the regulatory approval for, for that. So that that's kind of one typical example. And they're, they're quite positive scenarios because they're um, you know, by and large, that's a that's a fund willing to invest and, and put growth capital into a business. Because at the other end of the regulatory spectrum, it's people who maybe hold licenses and are in difficulty, you know, because the, the regulator wants to see well-funded and well-capitalized businesses. And if because of the COVID period or for some other reason, you aren't meeting their requirements, you can easily find you're in a negotiation with them and they're trying to either take security or close down your business in some way. So we will advocate for companies and we'll help to make sure that we get the best sort of possible outcome and we'll look at what what we have as a whole toolkit rather than just a you know one or two tools that the the regulator might mention as as options we have a bunch of other things that we've having been doing this for 10 years we kind of know what they'll accept in terms of you know parent guarantees or restrictions or you know subordination of loans all these sorts of different things that we can maybe maybe apply that's the kind of stuff we do in the regulatory space i suppose outside of that what we're seeing at the moment and again i, I talked to that it's a bit of an inflection point at the moment is that it does feel like the, the ones that have survived and come out of the other end of the kind of COVID period, and I've started to see some good good numbers coming through this part of the summer, uh, this sort of first six months of this year, now feels like a good time to look at, well, having, having just been kind of head down, get through it, now is a good time to get your head up and look a little bit at what are the next three to five years look like. And so we're starting to have these slightly more long-term strategic planning conversations with companies, which is partly building out a financial model of scenarios, partly looking at, well, what is in the next three to five years? Is it growth? Is it is there an exit along there? Is there some other kind of events that we need to start to plan towards? And only really by setting that plan, taking the time out of the business to work with the management team to look at all those sorts of um, those sorts of key areas, only then can you start to put in place the detailed plan to close any gaps that you might have. Um, so we're starting to see a lot more of that sort of activity going on now, partly because we're in slightly more positive territory and there are more options and more opportunities out there now because we're starting to see things like new insurers coming back, new merchant acquirers coming back, customer demand back. That's driving investors. Banks and lenders seem to be a bit more, uh, have a bit more of an appetite to open their wallets. So it feels like quite a positive time, actually. Oh. Thanks very much for that, Martin. So for all our listeners, obviously being a tour operator is the most fantastic job in the world. You'd be lucky to do it, but it is complex. We know it's complex. You know it's complex. And the regulatory frameworks around it is even more complex. It's certainly beyond my capability to understand them all. So if you're looking to understand this more, you need help, please just reach out to Martin at the Travel Trade Consultancy. You can find them on LinkedIn, you can find them by the website, or you can reach out via Tourpreneur myself and I'll get you in touch. So Martin, thanks very much for giving us all your expertise. My pleasure. Really good to talk to you, Peter.